0: speak about the experience of selflessness and interconnectedness and how those two come together. Um, I wanted to give a few teachings that might help us to understand and feel more at ease with that experiential understanding. I know it can be quite a fearful thing sometimes when we begin to enter experientially into the understanding of the empty nature of self or um, selflessness or all those other words that are used to describe it. I remember growing up and my mother not having very much education used to say to me to get an education and to learn more because I might turn into a nothing, and my God, I did, you know, <laughs> through the practice. <laughs> so how do I reconcile this? <laughs> um, so how do I reconcile all of this, you know, with this, un- this deeper understanding of the selfless nature of life? and my part, the importance of my part in the world. So, this is a a medley of teachings. All of us have seen how important the continuity of practice is. Sometimes we're generally mindful and sometimes we're more precisely mindful But nevertheless, that continuity gathers a lot of momentum and the power of that momentum carries our practice at times into deeper places through a kind of effortless mindfulness. We begin to be more at ease, more accepting with things as they are, resting more into the truth of our vulnerability with life at times we may experience quite deeply and also quite easily how the defining lines of what we call body and how our sense of feeling separate begin to be very thin the experientially it's feeling very porous about our movement in life feeling quite intangible, not so solid. And so sometimes the teachings of the empty nature of self can feel so intimidating, Uh, we can be quite fearful. But when we look more closely into our moment-to-moment experience of it, we can see that the dissolving evanescent moment-to-moment experience can actually be quite strengthening quite unburdening and freeing. So tonight I'd like to touch into the, that impersonal nature of life, how we actually experience it moment to moment, and at the same time, how we experience a great interconnectedness into all of life. So by exploring our hearts, our minds, our bodies, and we observe how the boundaries begin to disappear, we come to know deeply the truth of how things are uh, beyond or before our thinking about it, our conceptualizing about it. We begin to know the sacredness of the fact that these boundaries that we felt were present are no longer present. They begin to disappear and the dividing line between who we think we are, ourselves, and others, also melts. One morning when I was on retreat, in the first part of the three-month course, I woke up feeling quite heavy and burdened, just woke up that way. It was, that day happened to me my daughter's 18th birthday. I think I talked about it before when she felt that now she had been writing and talking and to us and saying that when she's 18 um, she's an adult and will make her own decisions and she that whole thought pattern and all of that made me feel you know that whole emptiness syndrome and I felt such a solid sense of self heavy burdened that morning constricted. And so alone, really, separated from everything else in life. So I went for a walk after breakfast, and on the walking path out there on the, in the meadow next to the um, tennis courts, there's a, that grassy area that we walk on, and it was kind of shiny with the dew, with the morning dew. And I was doing. Um, walking meditation and as I was doing walking meditation I noticed the mist um, that was around it was you know we know that that's like the dew evaporating or the warmth of the earth condensing in the coldness and um, it was such a teaching from nature I'm sure every one of you have had similar teachings from nature you get this teaching of this mist coming up or these conditions are coming together and forming this mist and then all of a sudden in the movement of this body through space in a few moments it also was experienced as just mist moving through space the dividing lines of what is seems to be this body just began to disappear, and in a moment that heaviness and that feeling of being burdened, all those fears and those thoughts and that sadness, all of that was very porous, dissolving also. And so during that time in the walking period, just feeling all of this happen. Sometimes feeling condensed in space. Sometimes feeling evaporated in space. Uh, a tear from my eyes fell onto the grass, and it—it was—it kind of surprised me because I wasn't really crying, or I didn't—I didn't feel like that—that that kind of sadness where you're—you're you're sobbing, but just a tear fell. And you know, when you're so quiet, you just you notice all these little things. And so, I, as I was looking down, I saw this tear fall, and touch a dewdrop on a piece of grass. And again, you know, in, in the same moment moments, it was like um, I was just like dissolving into nature. You know, like the tear. From this body was no different from that dewdrop, and it—it it was such um, a transcendent moment that's hard to speak about. But I know that you know, in your own way, you know how that is. You get a teaching from nature, and it's worth more than like you know, a thousand Dharma talks. <laughs> <laughs> where you're trying to figure out, you know, what the words mean and everything. It was a sense of joining into the universe. And it felt, I felt so strong. You know, in, the, in one moment there was a feeling of feeling so separated and alone. And then and next moments after that, there was a sense of really being held by um, dewdrops. And what that means, you know, the water element, or whatever that means, I I can't even say, but I've really felt a sense of how first feeling so contracted and such a personal sense of separation, how that became so impersonal and then universal. And um, I felt strengthened by that. There was such a strong connection with all of life that um, everything dissolved. This is a poem by Isa that I found just while I was preparing this Dhamma talk in the last couple of hours. And this is a Japanese poet who lived um, from 1763. He died in the 1800s, so not so long ago. And he wrote this poem. Um, when one of his children died dew evaporates and all our world is dew so dear so refreshing so fleeting and when I go to that moment of noticing you know the teardrop kind of join into life um When I reflect on that time, it was such a dear, dear time. Like, uh, it was beyond happiness and sadness. You know, that dividing line just disappeared. The fleetingness of it was um, freeing. And it was so unburdening, you know, refreshing. So it's hard to describe how utterly simple these moments can be, yet how utterly deep they can be in our experience, and how the momentary experience of freedom in that way, there are other kinds of ways, but in that way can be so freeing, so uplifting. When we begin to see through In all the different ways that we do this, when we begin to see through a solid sense of self, it can be so freeing. Um, And as we experience it over and over and over again, we begin to be more at ease with that kind of um, vulnerability that we have in life, that vulnerability of change, that vulnerability that we experience when there's this deep feeling of the insolidity of body, that kind of melting into the universe, when the mind and body begin to be just like that, dew evaporating into space. This is um, from a Zen monk who wrote a letter to one of his disciples, who was about to die. Your end, which is endless, is as a snowflake dissolving in pure air. Your end, which is endless, is as a snowflake dissolving in pure air. So we get this sense, even in our moment-to-moment experience, of how this can be. when finally there are moments of that really deep resting, really deep accepting of how things are, of the quickly changing present moment, how we can flow with the experience in the river of life, how we can melt like a snowflake. It's like a death in a way. It's like a, it's a death of feeling separate. It's a birth of integrating into life. And so we feel the pain of that death. In Another way of looking at it is we see clearly the suffering of attachment that wants to hold on to the moment in however it had been presenting itself. So opening to that moment, there can be some pain. We realize um, the attachment to it. But then when we let go, it's so relieving, it's such a birth of our kind of melting into something greater, something bigger than who we think we are. Countless times it happens in our practice, but it's so evanescent, you know, it's so um, porous that we don't remember these times a sound arises, and there's just the hearing. Just really reflect on, back on your moments of actually experiencing this, when there's just sitting in the hall, and a sound, whether pleasant or unpleasant, comes, and it feels like it's just traveling through space, where there's no solidity in the body, it's just traveling through the body, and there's just the hearing. And maybe there's the breath, our awareness on the breath. There's no sense of belly or body or nose or chest or Kamala or woman. It's just this sense of noticing changing sensations, tension, heat, coolness, softness, hardness, whatever it is. And then when we put awareness on the thoughts, on our thinking process, on the mind, we begin to experience that ever-changing energy field. You know, when, when the contents of the thought are no longer alluring us. There are moments when it's like that. It's just the elemental experience and the bare attention to it when there's no identification, no creation of a sense of I, no solidification, no feeling of me, mine, self, separation. I remember the time once when I was practicing um, for the first time with Upandita and it was a month-long practice in Australia. And uh, of all the concepts, Of a sense of self that there is this feeling of attachment to. The strongest one in my life has been um, the concept of mother, of being a mother. Um, Mm -hmm. And all, you know, the responsibilities and everything that comes with it, the joys and sorrows. And because it's been most of my life, I've been a mother for 30 years. So, I remember when those moments came of you know this breaking up of the solidity of a sense of solidity in the body of a sense of uh continuity of who I thought I was and everything just got totally broken down and in the interview that I went to with Upandita I was sobbing I was on the floor in front of him and I said I want to go home I can't take this anymore and And he said, he asked me what was happening, and I said, (laughs) I said, I'm really not a mother. (laughs) And my mother isn't my mother. It's just all this stuff coming together. And that was what was so kind of shocking to me, because that sense of self was the most solid to me, sense of being a mother. And it started all getting broken up. The understanding of it went much more deeply, than on the conceptual level. When this happens to us in all the different various forms that it happens, sometimes it, for different ones of us, it happens very gradually, and sometimes, like in my own experience, it happened very very quickly. Um, it's so powerful because it's turning the mind in our lives towards much more freedom towards a way of living our lives with uh, a much deeper understanding than what we held. It's also turning our minds towards much more freedom because in those moments of just bare attention, in those moments of just pure awareness where there is just what is known and the knowing of it, just that, moment-to-moment, in those moments of pure mindfulness, there's no greed, there's no hatred, there's no delusion. It's a moment of pure purity. And it's what Upandita used to call a mini-enlightenment. When it's just pure, there's no greed, no hatred, no delusion, or none of the different strands of that. There is no creation or recreation of a sense of I, of a sense of me, of wrong view. There's no clinging to a sense of self. All of these which cause suffering, greed, hatred, delusion, clinging to a sense of self, I know sometimes, in my practice, I get really frustrated because I don't feel like I'm mindful. Um, and when I look back, I think, oh, how many moments was I mindful in this day? Maybe, you know, not very many. Mostly, unmindful. And when you realize how pure awareness is, that awareness is just is really just like a mirror, it reflects what's happening in the moment. In itself, it's empty. Um, we don't remember the empty parts, the parts that are just, you know, just reflecting what's happening in the moment, because it's so intangible. We remember most the gritty parts, the parts where we feel solidified and identified with the pain and uh, feeling separate from life. And so when we look back, we think, oh, wasn't very mindful. But actually, there are many moments in the day that we are very, very mindful. And there is this purification process taking place, purification of a sense of I, of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, when I look back on my practice and I see just in those moments even or those hours before what we might call deep practice or opening into um, moments of um, emptiness we call it different things but even when I look at those hours before there wasn't a you know mindfulness really of every moment. might have been just moments before, but there's a lot of moments when we go in and out of being precisely mindful, of really being mindful. And when we look back, we have such a sense of doubt about our practice because what remains in our mind is all the gritty parts, all the parts where we thought we weren't doing good. And so, it's helpful to remember that you don't have to be perfect to be free. You know, just keep the continuity of mindfulness going. And if you just keep your commitment to the continuity, there'll be moments of time when there'll be one moment after another of complete mindfulness. And those moments, even if they're five or six or ten or fifteen or whatever, can be so powerful. So it's important not to judge our practice, and it's really important to um, make the intention to notice when we're beginning to judge our practice. Because it's in those moments that we tend to lose everything that we've done well in that past day or that the few hours just before that. We don't remember how we did so good we just remember how we did bad so notice the judging mind in practice Uh, it was one of the most helpful things that came to me from my teachers not to judge the practice and when it's happening to notice it right away So with every moment when awareness arises, with whatever is happening in that moment, when there's just the hearing, just the tasting, just the smelling, just thinking, just knowing whatever aversion is there, sensations in the body, pleasant, the unpleasant, when there's just the experience, then there's no creation of an experiencer. There's no creation of self when there is this awareness, this pure awareness with whatever's happening. So in those moments, in a very organic way, this um, experience of the selfless, impersonal nature of life is being deeply understood without thinking about it. It's just being understood through the experience. And the experience of self at the same time is being deconditioned. So it happens so simply like this when we have a relationship of awareness as much as we can to every moment of life. This is how our life begins to be transformed. How the understanding of The emptiness of self or the selfless nature of life, the impersonal nature of life, begins to be understood without hearing about it or reading about it. It's just through experience. This transformation takes place moment by moment. It's the only way it can take place, moment by moment. And soon it begins to be a pervasive part of our life. Once I asked the question, how do we construct a sense of self? And the the answer was so simple that um, I just kept this answer. And whenever I heard more complex talks about the understanding of sense of self, I just let the complexity of it go, and just kept with the simplicity of this understanding. Very basic. How do we construct a sense of self? When there's no awareness, when there's no mindfulness in our moment-to-moment experience, we relate to that moment with some form of attachment, aversion, or confusion. And when we relate to that form in that way, that experience gets solidified, and we get identified with that experience. When it gets solidified, we don't see any of the deep truths or the characteristics there. We don't see impermanence. We don't see the unsatisfactory nature, the dukkha nature of it. We don't see the, um, the selfless nature of it. Because when we're relating in that moment with greed, hatred, or delusion, confusion, it gets solidified. But when we're relating in that moment, to that moment, with awareness or with mindfulness, it's not solidified. And we're able to deeply see the truth of that moment. So in a way you could say that a relationship of mindfulness or awareness is the only way that we don't create a sense of I or a sense of self. A relationship of awareness to our moment's experience is the only way that we don't create a sense of I, a sense of self. And when I realized that, or I heard that, I I don't know exactly, I don't remember how that came. But, um, you know, that it it began to bother me at one time, that um, verse from the Buddha that says, this is the only way to the end of suffering. Thinking, you know, well, the Buddha doesn't have the only way. There were many other great teachers. You know, there was Christ, there was blah, blah, blah. And when I realized that the only way meant awareness is the only way that we don't create a sense of self, which is the deepest form of suffering, it began to make more sense to me. It's a strong statement, and I encourage you to, to test it out for yourselves, because I found for myself, or my no-self, that it was true. <laughs> that this is how it is. There's a sutta, I think it was read, but I'll read it again. It's called the Bahia Sutta. And this is, the Bahia was one of the disciples of the Buddha. And this was the Buddha speaking to this disciple. O Bahia, whenever you see a form, let there just be the seeing. Whenever you hear a sound, let there just be the hearing. When you smell an odor, let there just be the smelling. When you taste a flavor, let there just be the tasting. When a thought arises, let it be just a natural phenomena arising in the mind. When you practice like this, there will be no self, no I. When there is no self, there will be no running that way and no coming this way and no stopping anywhere. Self doesn't exist. That is the end of suffering. That itself is freedom. So when we practice in this way, we really begin to see the misperceptions that we've been living with. That what we thought was solid and and permanent is not really solid and permanent because we begin to see more deeply into the true nature of each moment, the impermanent, unsatisfactory, selfless nature. So what happens is our long-held concepts and beliefs begin to naturally dissolve. Um, we experience our bodies and our minds free from this limited previous knowledge that we had, very limited knowledge that we, we had, we begin to actually experience our bodies as not solid, quite evanescent, not continuous. Sometimes it can be very fearful, but sometimes it's quite a relief to experience it this way. we get to the place where, um, I think Pema Chodron wrote a book about the wisdom of no escape, when we can't escape this truth anymore, when we can't go back to that limited knowledge that we held, that held us in some kind of bondage in the past. And as we experience this over and over again, we begin to feel more assured about this new truth. We begin to live more in alignment with it instead of fighting it in our lives. So we come to experience our bodies and our minds in a revolutionary way, in a new way. And maybe we sit or stand there in some kind of momentary awe even when it's such a subtle realization. Seeing this bundle of this mind and this body continuum so fleeting appear and disappear beyond what we can even describe. There were words from the Diamond Sutra that didn't make sense to me many years ago in my practice. And when this understanding of life began to be more embodied It made more sense. So this is from the Diamond Sutra. Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. When we take those words and bring those words to our own experience, ah, they're true. It's almost like a holy experience. You know, this experience of ultimate reality like that. And this is where we begin to, um, the the beginning of verified faith begins. You know, I think we talked the other night, I spoke about and maybe Sharon covered faith in different ways, where there's um, blind or bright faith, when you're depending on another, uh, something outside of yourself to keep your practice going. But we begin to experience this deeply, this kind of holiness, this kind of sacredness of life. And that is really verified faith. We begin to see it for ourselves. This experience of ultimate reality and when we're experiencing that, you know, at the time it feels like there's such a lightness in our being. It's like we're going around wearing gossamer wings. And we begin to say, how am I going to handle myself in life? You know, how, how can I rectify this? How can I reconcile this into my everyday life? Because it's such a new... Um, uh, terrain, such a new experience. It's hard to think about it. but somehow it comes into our life, that understanding comes into our life in such a gentle and and easy way that when I look back at all the fears I had about, well, how am I going to relate to life now, I feel so raw and open. No. and um like I'm almost not there. But somehow we do. And all those fears that I had in the past really uh, were like another moment of feeling solid that disappeared. Um, I would think, how am I going to make decisions in life? Will I lose my ability to know how to be but actually we know how to be in a better way in life because we live more in alignment with the deeper truth. One time I was on a boat uh, and it was kind of a joining that my experiences around this uh, experience on the boat were like a joining of those two, feeling like Dissolving into life, and at the same time, you know, needing to make decisions to to keep myself afloat in life. Literally, I was on a boat um, a few years ago, a sailboat, and this was uh, we were sailing between Maui and Molokai, and uh, a friend of ours had taken her her sailboat out, and I don't think she had sailed for very long. But anyway, <laughs> a bunch of us were trusting her and we went out. And um, I was beginning to get seasick and wanting to, to vomit. And so uh, there was a, you know, the, the winds had come up and there were the, the waters were choppy and the boat was rocking like that. And on the boat with us was... Uh, a researcher, a whale researcher from Australia, and his wife, and he was a big, big guy, over six feet tall, weighed probably over 200 pounds, and his wife was on the boat with him, and she was not feeling so good either, and so they were telling me to jump in the water because I, I was feeling nauseous, and I would get over my nausea, so um, I was a little bit afraid. I could see... Uh, A little um, windstorm from afar. It's it's in this particular channel where the winds come down in the afternoon. So I was seeing the winds come, and the waters were choppy around us. So um, I was near the where I was going to jump off, deciding whether to go or not. And the the wife of the researcher said, "I'm going to jump in too." Asked her husband if he would jump in. So she said they both did so i thought okay great i'll i'll jump in too because i'll feel safe around them and two other ladies jumped in so we all jumped in and then the woman the wife started saying oh honey to to her husband i'm scared i'm scared and i thought oh god i used you know a four letter word <laughs> what am i doing here if she's scared i'm you know this is terrible. What am I going to do? And so I just I started to shout immediately to my friends on the boat, hand me the, the lifesaver, throw me the lifesaver. And just as I shouted it, the, the wind came and it blew the boat away. And the, the skipper of the boat was trying to bring the sails down, but couldn't bring the sails down. And um, the boat just went away. And here we were, there were five of us in the middle of this channel, which is can be treacherous in the afternoon between Molokai and Maui, and I, I didn't know what to do, and I was in this vast ocean, and um, the two ladies who were friends of mine swam near me and were trying to help me to stay afloat. And the, the husband, the, the man, was helping his wife. And so there's a little pot of three, and then the other two were over there. And so uh, the one lady gave me her flipper, and she kept one, and she said, use one. And so I was, the, the swells were getting bigger and bigger to where, you know, if you were in a swell, in, in, the, in one of the depths of the swell, you wouldn't see anybody else. So I started to get really afraid and between it was between being afraid and being mindful of it and the in the mindfulness of it was like just kind of like melting in the water. And there were moments of being afraid and keeping keeping myself together, you know, having that fear feed a sense of survival, which was good. And the moments of mindfulness where it was just like oh letting go and just like sinking into the water and you know, sinking into the water and then coming up and feeling like I've got to live and thinking, did I put all the money aside for the last kid to go to college and, you know, all these and then my friends were saying to me keep yourself afloat, Kamala, let's sing a song. So we started to sing a song and then they started to say, "Um, well, think about what, you know, what would you like in life? Do you want love? Do you want, you know, think about all this stuff. Do you want all the, uh, your higher self to come and help you and, you know, on a different path, so have to figure that part out. So higher self and angels and think what you want to come and help you and, you know, just think good thoughts and all that. And so this other woman and I looked at each other, you know, the, the wife of the researcher and we were both really fearful and I was feeling like, What am I going to do? And sinking into the water. And we both looked at each other with such like clarity. And we both yelled out at the same time, We want the boat! (laughs) Forget about the angels. We want the boat! I can assure you that you'll know what to do in life. (laughs) your sense of dissolving into life and your sense of, you know, knowing what to do won't be separate from each other. From that time on, nobody has wanted to go sailing with me. <laughs> it's like bad luck. <laughs> There's one teaching that has been uh, really helpful to me. And um, so I... I thought I'd share this teaching with you. And when I received the teaching, it was in a a very theoretical way. But somehow, I let the teaching sink in. And it made a lot of sense in terms of integrating with the practice. And especially because when reporting to our teacher, Upandita, you had to report in a certain way. And I think Joseph mentioned this last night, how you you had to report in a way that wasn't on the conceptual level, but more on like a moment to moment level of just what was being experienced. So there was this, I remember first hearing the instructions, it was actually Steve, when I didn't know him, years before I, I came uh, to know him, he was sitting up here in his monk's robes and he gave the instructions on how to report, and it was so scary for me you know, of uh, how to report in that way. It was so impersonal that it, you know, it wiped out any sense of feeling held by your teacher or like that. And um, it was so impersonal that it scared me. And then I realized when I would walk into the interview room with Upandita, after a few times and a few years of doing that, I'd walk, I'd realize that when I walked into the room, he really never saw me as a person or a self (laughs) or Kamala. He saw me as this bundle of energy, you know, that was um, maybe imbalanced in some way that needed to be rebalanced. This bundle of these elements coming together, arising and passing away or of these aggregates that Steve spoke about a few nights ago. And so the interviews were structured in such a way, or the reporting was structured in such a way, that it served to impersonalize experience and to come to really point one closer to experiencing the truth. So what had to be reported was in the noting of like the rising of the abdomen, first we had to report on the primary object or anchor, which is wherever the breath is. On the rising, say we'll take the abdomen, on the rising, one noted rising. But what was noticed within that rising? And so we really had to experience deeply and closely what was being noticed within that note of rising. The note rising connected to the experience and then there was a focus and sustaining of attention on that rising moment. But what was noticed? Maybe it was heat, tension, pressure, heaviness, lightness, softness. So we actually had to report that way. In the noting of rising, this is what was noticed. Tension, heaviness, softness, etc. And in the falling, I noted falling. And in that falling, this is what was noticed. And the same thing, then you had to report on secondary objects. And you had to take a slice of your practice, probably like 10 seconds. Of your practice, not a whole day, or but ten seconds of your practice, and said, uh, and and talked about, like in in one sitting. Um, maybe there was some sadness. Okay. Level of the body arose, <whistles> and in that. No- Like in in one sitting, um, maybe there was some sadness. And so maybe you reported just on that slice, in a moment of sitting, sadness arose. And in that noting of sadness, what was noticed? So you might note at the elemental level of the body, heaviness, um, tightness, constriction confusion, disbursement, very, very, um, in a very precise way. And so, uh, I realized how wonderful that was. You know, because it actually, it was totally impersonal, which pointed one in the direction of that impersonal sense of self, and really began to see more deeply the insolidity and the discontinuity of moment-to-moment experience. So when I heard this um, talk on the four great elements, things began to come together for me. So I'd like to say what these four great elements are, uh, and then just take it in. You know, you, Don't try to figure it out. Just just take it in as it is. So in the aggregate of the body, or sometimes you hear rupa, that word, or the material elements, matter, body. This is made up of four great elements, or sometimes referred to as the four great primaries. They are earth, water, fire, and air. This is in the Um, this Theravada, understanding, this path, understanding. So taking the first of those uh, elements, the earth element, how does it manifest actually in our practice? It manifests as solidity. It feels hard. Or the other side of that is soft. It is experienced through expansion. It's due to expansion that we feel and we see objects in space. This is part of the old text. Um, It is said that this earth element is found in all other elements, but when we experience it, as hardness or softness, when we experience earth element in this way, um, the, even though all of the other elements are also there, the earth element preponderates. So it's, it's more predominant. So how do we experience earth element in sitting? And this is s- some things that we might describe, for example, to Upandita. So when bringing the attention to the body and feeling the hardness of a moment, it might be experienced as prickly and it might move into softness, velvety, lightness, rigidity, gentleness, harshness, tenderness, stinging, floating, pinpricks. These are all ways that the earth element might manifest in our moment-to-moment experience on the cushion. So when we experience that, we don't say earth element. You don't have to say that. That actually gets more confusion. Just knowing hardness, softness. We know for ourselves, like when we, we can fluff up our Zafu and sit on it when we look at this stuff about hardness and softness. And at first, it can seem like soft. And (laughs) later it turns hard. You know, so that's earth element. Both hardness and softness. So what about the water element? This is experienced as fluidity. Actually, in true actuality, it can't be experienced directly. It's said also that water element is part of all the other elements. And what it does, it's, um, it coalesces things. It coheres things. It binds things. It's like, um, it's said that this water element is the strongest, the most powerful of all the other elements. It's very strong because even after separ- something separates, when the water element is there, it comes together again. It coalesces. It's like when you drop water or milk, y- you can see it drops on the floor, but it comes together again, even in space. But when you drop something like a rock, something that's more where earth element is preponderating, it it's, goes apart. So, they say that this uh, water element is the strongest, the most powerful. So how do we experience this? We sometimes we experience it as wetness, stickiness, heaviness. There's a flowing or a melting, but it's not experienced so clearly. The third element is the fire element it's manifested as heat. It also is in other elements. Uh, but when we experience heat or coolness, which is just relative, it's said that that's when the fire element is the strongest or preponderates. So how do we experience that? How we might, might we see that in our practice? We might see it sometimes as heat Coolness, warmth, also as gentleness, floating sometimes, or when we get chills. We, we don't say this is the fire element when we're sitting. We just experience it very directly in, in its ultimate nature as heat. And the last element is the air element. It expresses itself as motion vibration, and sometimes when there's swaying in the body or jerking. This is the air element. Once when I was practicing with Upandita, oh, with Manindra, and there was a lot of swaying and jerking in the body. And he was talking, saying to me, this is rapture. But it felt quite unpleasant, actually, Um, but said this was rapture. And I I wasn't satisfied with that answer. And later came back and I asked him, what is this really? You know, not, there's not any intention that I can pick up, you know, for the body to move and yet it jerks or sways and can't stop it. Um, and it, then he said, just very simply, oh, that's the air element expressing itself. Sometimes we experience it as stretching, stiffness in the body. It's described in the text as something that supports like um, a ball that is uh, that is filled up with air. you know it supports the um, uh, the kind of uprightness of that ball, that ball occupying space and staying steady and same when it happens to us like when we're feeling sleepy, you know when we we start to nod off and, and kind of it feels like the air is coming out of the body and it's not, the body isn't feeling supported. Once when I described again to Manindra, what, what's happening there? You know, the body's just kind of going like that. And he said, oh, the air element is lessening. And it actually feels like that, like, you know, like there's air being let out of the body and can't hold it up anymore. So sometimes it's experienced as stiffness, tension, pulling, relaxation, bending, vibration, tightness, releasing. So in these ways we begin to see how we experience the the elemental nature of life. You know, right in our own bodies, earth, air, water, fire, so close we experience it, and we begin to live our lives from a a deeper, fuller meaning. To me, I've seen that spiritual maturity really begins when we understand how to integrate the truth of this ultimate reality and living in the world, when we begin to kind of um, weave that together There's a poem by, or um, something written by Black Elk of the Ogala Sioux, and it speaks of this kind of understanding how we begin to melt into life when we know our deeper nature. And the um, understanding of no self really opens into the understanding of no separate self. Then he says like this, Then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw the sacred hoop of my people was one of the many hoops that made one circle wide as daylight and as starlight. And so as we see more deeply into the nature of who we are, quite elementally, it begins to open and connect into the nature of what everyone is and what all of this life is, quite elementally. And naturally and so can when we experience a tear from our eyes it's no different or separate from the tear that a mother cries in Africa for her own children or the waters of the ocean that are quite impersonal when we feel the hardness and softness of this body is it separate from the hardness and softness or the pain of another that we don't even know? Is it different from the mountain that lives beyond behind our home? You know, we begin to see our deep interconnectedness of life, the fire element, the heat and coolness that we experience in this body. Is it any different from that volcano that's been erupting in Hawaii for over ten years now. So from our experience of nothingness it really opens into our experience of everythingness and we live our lives from this deeper more complete wisdom. There's this one saying by um, Nisargadatta Maharaj that's a favorite of mine Love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and between the two my life flows. So let's sit for a moment with that and let the words dissolve.